But let's open our Bibles to uh, the last chapter of 2 Peter. The return of the king has an element we're looking at, and that is that he returns in fiery judgment. Jesus comes as the king in blazing fire. And to prepare us for that, Peter writes his last chapter and says, this is how you get ready so that everything you live for doesn't get burned up. And, and so the, the backdrop for the return of the king is Peter explaining this situation. And basically, uh, Peter most clearly explains the day of the Lord's second coming as king. And, and what we need is what he tells us to frame our understanding, not of how to survive that day. We will not be in danger on the day of the second coming, but how to live now. Because remember, the people he wrote this to, 2 Peter 3, definitely weren't there at Christ's second coming. That was 2,000 years ago. But the elements of how they were supposed to live are what we're supposed to pick up and what they picked up and they did live. So basically, it's all about avoiding the pitfalls, the pitfalls that Peter tells us of materialism. So what are the, the pitfalls that we should avoid of materialism? And, and basically... Peter tells us five of them in chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Now remember, Peter is writing at the end of his life. It's for the early church. They thought they were going through the end. Fiery trials were coming. And so Peter says, the fiery trials are here, but he said there's something even more dangerous. And it's the glittering allurement of the world, of materialism. And so what he says, number one, is materialism blurs our purpose in life as disciples. So avoid getting blurred in life by materialism away from what you were called to do. Against uh, materialism, we resist because we were called to be disciples of Christ, those who are making disciples for Jesus Christ. And so he says, live redemptively. Go through life not trying to acquire more material things, but go through life trying to redemptively point more people to Jesus Christ. In fact, one of the greatest delights in life is to know you're taking someone with you to heaven. That means that you have prayed for a lost person, asked the Lord to help you share the gospel with a lost person, share the gospel with a lost person, help them as they reach out to Christ, and then know that they have connected with him and their sins are forgiven. That opportunity is the greatest of all. I mean, there's nothing greater in life than actually taking someone with you to heaven. And that's why we regularly advertise for people to help in the Sunday schools. Did you know that, that about 90% of everybody that gets saved gets saved before they get out of high school? And those vast teeming fields, white unto harvest, are in the youth ministry. And so it's something that, that we're called to do. Live redemptively. That's the first nine verses. We covered that on the power outage Sunday. Then secondly, starting in verse 10, materialism clouds our minds with the idolatry of coveting. What, what happens is uh, we're supposed to have these minds that are in tune with what God wants, but what, what, if we're not careful, what happens is our minds get intoxicated, clouded by the idolatry of covetousness. Um, I, I think about Bonnie and I are getting ready in, in April. Uh, we're going to be speaking uh, at different church planning conferences, and one of the spots where we're ministering is the world's most polluted city presently. It's so bad there, it's Beijing, China, that you can't see across four lanes of traffic. And so everybody in Beijing is starting to wear these masks. 
And so the people over there that we're working with said, now you need to get a mask. You, you know, you can either go to Home Depot and get one of those dumb throwaway white ones with the metal, you know, like you wear in the workshop, or you can get a pretty one. But it says it doesn't matter because if you don't, you will be breathing that in and you'll start coughing and not be able to, you know, you just get it all in your throat and you can't talk. What, what we don't realize is because materialism is invisible, as far as the effects of it, we don't realize that materialism begins to intoxicate and blur people's minds. And they start thinking unbiblically. And they start thinking about, oh, I don't want to do that because I can do this. And, and all of a sudden, the things of earth draw them more than the things of heaven. So Peter says, avoid that pitfall. Don't let materialism cloud your mind with the idolatry of coveting. Stay alert, wear your mask, guard against the pathogens. Thirdly, in verse 12, and we saw this last week, materialism clutters our lives with discontent. Now, even when I say this, I said in first service, it's always hard for me because one of my dearest, dearest, closest friends in the whole world, I'm sure he's listening to the streaming service, and he's a magnate in, in mini-storages. I mean, he's made a fortune in mini-storages. Uh, but you know what a mini-storage is? It's a device that was invented because of our desire for more stuff. And we, we start out life with a little, well, with nothing, and then we start acquiring stuff, and then we acquire and we like it so much, we don't want to get rid of it, so we start stuffing the closets and the basement if we have one, and then the garage until the car doesn't fit in there. And then, you know, we feel as winter's coming, we've got to do something with all this stuff, so we empty it out and we put it in a mini storage, yes, and park the car, but then when spring comes, car comes out, we fill it back up, but we don't get rid of the mini store, we get another one, see, and, and that's why this guy has made a fortune, because people, once we get stuff, we, most of his people never stop renting their mini storage, he says, and they don't even visit it, they never visit their stuff, they just have it there, and then they get another one, and they put more in there, and it's like our lives get cluttered, and so Peter says, watch out, materialism will clutter your life with discontent. You always will want more, and you'll be working a second and third job to get another toy, and you already have too many toys to play with as it is. And he says, don't do that. Build fireproof. In other words, don't fill the mini storage of your life with what's going to burn up. Save the energy. Well, then, this morning, verse 14. Materialism, if we're not careful, blinds our eyes to Christ. What Jesus said is, if our eyes are fixed on him, we will see clearly the king and his beauty, the land that's afar off, and we will know his will and be following it. If we aren't, he said, there's only two choices. Either we look at him and we seek him, or the things of earth, the treasures, this, the, all the pursuits of this world begin to draw us. And what we don't realize is when we look at them, Reminds me of my astronomy class when I was at Hazlitt High School. We were all grinding our own reflective telescopes, you know, making six-inch mirrors and all this stuff. And we were going to have a sunspot observation day. Do you know what happens if you put your little six-inch reflector telescope and look through that magnification at a sunspot? Your sight will dim rapidly. And so we had to get welders, you know, these, this really dark smoked glass that, that arc welders wear. And we had to put those over so that the blinding light wouldn't harm our eyes as we were looking at our sunspots. You know what people, and, and the teacher was saying, oh, you know, be really careful. You don't want to hurt your eyes. But people don't realize it blinds us to Christ to long after all the, the idolatry of things that are about us. So materialism, Peter is warning, and we'll look at that this morning, blinds our eyes to Christ if we keep looking at those earthly treasures. So what we're supposed to do is look up. 
We're supposed to turn, as Helen Lemel said, our eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and when that happens, we get blinded to the things of earth. They grow strangely dim. We aren't so allured by them. And then finally, we'll see next week, Lord willing, materialism corrodes our wills. Why is that? Jesus said, you can't serve two masters. Either you will obey Christ or you will obey the God of this world and, and his materialistic pursuits. And he says, you can't serve both. And what Christians try and do is they love Christ and they belong to him. They're bought by him. And so they're trying to do both. And it's corrosive. You know, when we lived, when I pastored in New England, we lived right on the ocean. And the salt gets in even the smallest little areas and starts corroding. Kind of like here in Michigan, you know, when the salt goes down the window wells and, and pretty soon the cars rot from the inside out, rust out. And, and that's what materialism does. If we're not careful, materialism corrodes our wills. And instead of us denying the, the siren song of the world and living for the things of the world, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, instead of denying that, we're corroded from our serving our true master. And we'll see that next week. So basically this morning, our challenge today is to beware of spiritual blindness. And Peter is going to reflect, starting in verse 14, on what that means. So in your Bible, 2 Peter chapter 3, starting in verse 14, and let's stand together, you follow along, and I will read to you 2 Peter chapter 3, starting in verse 14. And let's, let's listen to this Peter's heart as he is imploring this early congregation, don't get blinded of what God wants for you by earthly treasures being more important than your heavenly Christ. This is what he says, verse 14. Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, without spot, and blameless. Verse 15. And consider that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which some things are hard to understand, which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction, as they do with the rest of scriptures. Verse 17. You therefore, beloved, since you know this beforehand, beware lest you also fall from your own steadfastness, being led away with the error of the wicked. Wow. Let's bow and ask the Lord to speak to our hearts. Dear Father, we always pause to stand before you and to say, Lord, your word is your voice. You have spoken you have clearly told us what you expect, what you desire, what you want from us, and we're supposed to consider this morning whether or not we will hear and obey, whether or not we will be hearers that don't deceive ourselves, but become doers because we want to respond to you. May today be a day of response. I pray that we wouldn't just sit through another sermon and just comment on what this or that was interesting. But may we truly allow you to speak into our lives, to point out to us areas that you're talking about, areas that we have allowed ourselves to get blinded to your beauty. 
that you are not as beautiful to us, not as attractive as you used to be. And help us to realize this morning why that is, that it's our treasures on earth that slowly erode our sight of you. So I pray for sight restoration, for blindness to be healed by your spirit through your word because we cry out to you to change us. In the name of Jesus, we ask that. Amen. You may be seated. As you're seated, always to understand the Bible, you have to look at the context. And the context of Peter's epistles would be the gospel record. The gospels are the context of these epistles. Now remember, Peter wrote First and Second Peter, but he wrote something else. And most of us don't realize that because of the titles of the books. If you think of the Gospels, you think of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Now, in a lot of game shows, you know, if they ever ask, you know, name four apostles, people would say what? Yeah, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And it would go, Err, if the game show knew anything. Uh, and, and they would say, Err, Mark and Luke aren't apostles. Matthew and John were. And people go, oh, well, how did they get in there? Well, the early church realized that at Peter's, at the, as Peter got older, John Mark became his close companion, and he traveled with him, and as Peter recounted the gospel stories that Christ was reminding him of, because he promised he'd bring them back to his memory, John Mark wrote down Peter's eyewitness account, and that's what became called the gospel by Mark. But everybody in the early church knew it was Peter. What they really knew is Peter didn't know how to write very well. In fact, if you ever have taken biblical Hebrew, or I mean biblical Greek, the worst book in the whole New Testament to translate are First and Second Peter. Those Greek words, it seems like he made some of them up. They aren't anywhere else in the Bible. And it's so hard. His grammar, his structure, the whole way that Peter wrote was very unpolished compared to Luke and Paul and, and writers like that, the writer of Hebrews. But Peter had a vivid, just, just um, captivating visual sight of events. And so Mark gets that written down. And so before Peter wrote First and Second Peter, he had already written down what we call the second gospel, the gospel by Mark. That's Peter's account of Christ's life, using Mark as his scribe, capturing the sights and sounds of those three plus years that just overflowed Peter's heart and his mind. Well, the amazing element of the gospel by Mark is the eyewitness dimension. Um, in fact, it's so neat. When you read Mark, everybody tells the, all four gospels have the feeding of the 5,000. Do you know what Mark records? Peter. He talks about the people sitting at the feeding of the 5,000. He said, and the Greek word that he used that Mark wrote down is like flowers in a field. And what Peter was saying is the whole, he can still see it. The whole side of the hill was green. And then the people in their colorful robes look like little pockets of flowers. And that's how he remembered the feeding of the 5,000. Nobody else notes that. And that's the vividness. So Peter really had some scenes, and he always remembered what Jesus said and the context. And so, to understand where we're headed in 2 Peter 3, I'd like to give you what I call Peter's biography. So just for a moment, think about Peter with me. Jesus found Peter along the shores of the Sea of Galilee. Remember? That's how the Gospels open, with Jesus walking along the shore of Galilee, and he saw Peter and Andrew's brother, and he said to them, follow me. That's how Peter 
was called to the ministry. He lived along the Sea of Galilee. He worked as a fisherman, and he's presented in the gospel as this hardworking, self-employed, diligent businessman trying to support his family. Did you know Mark chapter 1 talks about Peter's mother-in-law? Did you know the only way you can get a mother-in-law is to have what? A wife, right? So Peter, as a disciple, had a wife and had a family, had a mother-in-law. And, and this caused him to be really into supporting his family because he's going off with Jesus and he's got this family he's got to support. And so he was this man who was trying to always weigh the cost of following Christ, whether he was going to be able to support his family. So that's all in the background. Well, one day, Peter's motivation for his career and his finances and for all of his goals in life were radically changed. In fact, the Bible says that Peter felt like Jesus was the word astonished, greatly astonished, is like someone hit him. And, and what Peter records, in fact, let's turn back there to Mark chapter 10 and verse 17. I want you to see it right through Peter's eyes. I want you to see one of the most moving events of Peter's life that totally changed for the rest of his life, his outlook on his career, on his finances, on his day-to-day -day job, and how he looked at life uh, financially and materially, okay? And it starts in verse 17. And this is what happened. Jesus said something that Peter could not forget. And it starts in verse 17. And basically this, verse 17 is a wealthy man that enthusiastically comes to Jesus and Peter watched him. You can see the eyewitness account. Peter said this guy ran up to Jesus. He didn't just run up to Jesus. Verse 17 says, he slid in and fell at Christ's feet and looked up at Jesus, and he popped on his knees, he pops the ultimate question to Jesus, which is, how can I have eternal life? I mean, that's the dream of anybody in the ministry, to have someone so excited about God, they race to us, instead of us having to find them and go through 50 people that denounce us for sharing Christ. What a joy to have someone this enthusiastic just slide in, but he wasn't just enthusiastic. He was very wealthy. The word there, the word speaks of high piles. His wealth to everybody around was so much that it, it wasn't like he was kind of had something. It's just like he had so much. Everyone knew it. And so that's verse 17. Well, that must have made Peter's heart well up with great joy. Wow. Somebody on the team with us, a wealthy man. He can really help the work of Christ that Peter was a part of. And this must have just been so exciting for Peter. But then what happens in verse 18 is what stunned Peter. The words Jesus said must have make him, made Peter shake his head. Have you ever, I mean, this happens to me all the time. Because, you know, I'm thinking all the time um, about something and uh, I'll be driving along with Bonnie, and, and after a little while, I'll, get, I'll say, what did you just say, honey? Could you say that again? What did I hear? Peter must have been going, what did you say, Jesus? Look at verse 18. Jesus bluntly told this eager, zealous young man who wanted to join in following Christ that he had to sell all of his vast possessions. He had to give away the fortune after he sold it to poor people, no less, and then he could follow Christ. And those words were Christ's pathway for that man to inherit eternal life. That would be a summary of chapter 10, verses 18, 19, 20, and 21.
Those verses, Jesus was very blunt. Well, the result must have been so disheartening for Peter. In fact, look at verse 22. That's his eyewitness account. He captured the emotional response of the man that, I mean, Peter was watching him. I mean, he was still thinking about this. And, and the man, as far as we know, was still on his knees looking up at Jesus, waiting for the answer. And Peter says, look at verse 22, but he was sad at this word. What word? Go sell everything. When you get the proceeds, give every bit of it away. Then you can follow me and have that eternal life you want so bad. And when the man heard this, that word, he went away sorrowful because he had great possessions. Peter also records that Jesus loved that man. So, so Jesus wasn't looking off smugly. He was looking down at him and he says, you want eternal life? Okay. Sell everything you have, give all the money away, and follow me. And the man looked up and he stood up and Peter registered that it wasn't hardness, it wasn't meanness. The man just, just became deeply sorrowful and he walked away. But look at what the ending of the verse 22 says. Why did he walk away? For he had great possessions. Next point, Christ unrelenting lesson. In all, if you look at every time Jesus touches on money, his unrelenting lesson was riches are a handicap. Now we don't, that is not talked about in America. In fact, if you went out and told people riches are a handicap, they would look at you like Bonnie and I used to look at this fella when we lived in Los Angeles in the 80s. There, we ate at the same place every morning right in down to 9th and Figueroa downtown LA. And this guy used to have this sandwich board. And he had real long, that kind of matted hair and this huge unkempt beard. And, you know, uh, I don't think he was barefoot. And he had this sandwich board and it said, prepare, uh, or something like that. And on the backside it said, for the end of the world. And he would just walk back and forth on the sidewalk. And we'd kind of think, whoa, you know, he's a little kooky, you know. Didn't know what he was talking about. You say riches are a handicap, people think you're wearing a signboard like that and look like that. I mean, it's so out of sync. But as always, Jesus had an intentional teaching time. Look at verse 23. This is when it really gets good. Jesus was training Peter and the rest of the 12, and here's the vital lesson. What Jesus wanted them to know is riches are a handicap to eternal life. That's not an aid. Wealth can be the greatest hindrance to eternal life. It doesn't help you get to heaven. Jesus looked around, verse 23, and said to his disciples. I mean, they're all kind of frozen. They were amazed the guy comes running and sliding in at Christ's feet. Then they were astonished at the exchange. And so they're just looking at Jesus, trying to, I mean, like, did we hear what you said? So Jesus says, he looks around at them, and he says, how hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. And verse 24, and the disciples were astonished at his words. So because they, you know, they were still shaking their heads. And so Jesus answered again and said to them, even more bluntly, children, how hard it is for those 
who trust in riches to enter the kingdom of God. Now, Jesus, what he's saying is, wealth is a handicap to eternal life. In fact, Jesus said, you can't get into heaven holding on to. Trust, notice what he says. Those who trust in riches to enter the kingdom of God. Why? Jesus said, I'm the door. I'm the gate. John 10, I'm the door that you enter into eternal life. I'm the gatekeeper. I'm the actual doorway. If you walk up to me and if I notice that you are pulling behind you your gigantic steamer of, of the ownership of all your possessions, I say, no, you can't come in with that. And if you won't let go, if you won't divest yourself of trusting, of, of having to have that with you all the time. You won't go without the, the security and support and, and whatever you get from all that being mine. Jesus said, I won't let you in. See, that's what he told that man. And that man looked back at the wealth he was towing through life. And he looked at Jesus and he looked at the doorway and he said, if the doorway is too narrow to get my bag through, I'm not going. You know, we, were, we flew on a lot of planes uh, last few days. And, you know, they always play that tape, you know. Now they have a movie. It was so cute. We're flying over the ocean as soon as this plane takes off. And if the plane crashes, your seat is a flotation device. And it shows someone standing up and clutching the seat and holding their wrist as they, you know, float away. And then they say, on the movie, they say, but if the plane is, you know, sinking... Don't take anything with you out of the plane, just your seat. You know, and the little thing you blow up and whistle and all that stuff. Don't take anything with you. And I thought, can you imagine being on a sinking airplane out in the middle of some ocean and, and have a person, you know, coming down the aisle with their suitcase and it's stuck and everybody's clambering over them and the plane is sinking. And you'd say, leave that behind. You're going to drown. That is exactly what Jesus was telling this man. And so look back at verse 25. He continues, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Why is that? Because they don't want to give up what they're towing. And, and now a lot of people have gone through this and they, they say, well, the eye of the needle is actually the little door in the middle of the gate. Jesus was not talking about little doors in the middle of gates and having camels crawl on their knees and shimmy through the door. To the normal person hearing him, a camel is the largest known land animal of their day. And the eye of a needle was the smallest little tiny opening that could be manufactured. So he took the smallest possible opening and the largest possible visible around them animal and he said, could that thing get through that? No. He said, that's how possible it is for rich people to get to heaven if they're trusting, if they won't turn loose of the ownership, of the allegiance to of their trust in their riches. So, look at verse 26. After he tells that story, they were greatly astonished. Now, what's interesting is the first astonished just means kind of flabbergasted. Verse 26, greatly astonished, I wrote in my Bible, literally it means to be struck or driven out by blows. It's the same word that's used when, when someone, you know, is, is taking a stick, you know, and, and and swatting someone and saying, get out of here, get out of here, get out of here. Kind of like you watch all these riots on TV and the, the riot uh, policemen are, got their truncheons and they're going like that. That's how the disciples felt. They felt Jesus came up and hit them and hit them and hit them. And they were, they were just, they were falling back from what he was saying. Because what he said was totally against everything that they had thought. 
Verse 27. Uh, they be, I mean, verse 26. They began saying then, who can be saved? Who can be saved? Verse 27. Jesus looked at them. And he said, with men it's impossible. But not with God. For with God all things are possible. What he's saying is salvation is, is impossible to start with. But it, it's even more unlikely if you're going to tow all that stuff through life. Well, Peter and the rest of the disciples were astonished and greatly astonished because money seemed to be the best thing to have. Money made life easier. And by the way, that's true. Did you know that? Money makes life easier. If you can pay people to do stuff for you, if you can pay people, I mean, I have a friend, he's a businessman, he has a trainer. I mean, this guy walks around him and says, do five more push-ups, do five more sit-ups, don't eat that, come on. And he has this professional trainer that just goes with him all over. It, and, and he works with him every day, runs with him, works out with him, eats with him. And, and money makes life easier. Money does a lot of things. More money, more power. I mean, look how people treat people once they know they have money. Look in James. You can get a better seat in church if you drive up in a better car. That's what James said. He says, the person crusted with gold, let them sit in the best seat. The poor people, the ones that are smelly, James says, whose clothes smell, have them sit in the back. Money brings power. Money means more freedom. Isn't that the American dream? Financial independence. Man, I used to go to those Amway rallies. Everybody wants to be independent. You don't want the corporation telling you what to do. You don't want anybody hemming you in. You want to be independent. And that's what money brings. It brings power. It brings freedom. More money, more security. Last week, when we were where we were in Honduras, the neighbors, the missionaries next door to us. I mean, everybody in Honduras has bars on their windows. They're about this far between them. And like, it looks like you're in jail when you're in the house. Every house has bars. They don't have glass on their windows. They have screens. Because why shut them? It's so hot. You leave your windows open year-round, and you have bars. So robbers won't come in. Well, the neighbors were, you know, eating, and then they were taking a nap. And the banditos came with a knife and went on the screen, and their arms through the bars. You know what? You don't have to have your body in to steal. You just stick your arm that far in the house and everything. And it just happens that they reached in the study, took the laptops. They reached in through the kitchen window and took the, you know, all the electronic devices just like that. Now, what would money have done? The rich people have guards that walk around their house so no one will their screens. And, and if you don't have enough money, you don't have enough security. Money is very useful. More money, more power, more money, more freedom, more money, more security. But Jesus added something to the equation that they had never thought of. Money makes earthly life easier, no question. But money can make eternal life impossible. That's why they felt blown away. I think we need to think about that. Jesus said money can make eternal life impossible. And we need to think of Christ's unrelenting lesson about that. Jesus was pointing out before their very eyes that material possessions tend to rivet the owner's attention on earth to the exclusion of heaven. And wealth can enslave us without us even realizing what's happening. So Jesus says, beware of riches. They can become your greatest handicap. Well, Peter, Peter was processing this. And you know, in fact, back up to chapter 4 of the Gospel by Mark because Jesus talked about this all the time, and I don't think we realize it. In fact, a nice thing to do is read through the gospel and look at Jesus talking about money. He talks more about money than any other topic. 
It's unbelievable how practical he was in his teaching. And as he's talking about money, look what he says. He's presenting the gospel in Mark chapter 4. We call it the sower and the seed, you know, that parable. But that was Jesus' teaching about how people get saved. They receive the engrafted word that saves their soul. But, but this is why some people don't get saved. Chapter 4, verse 19. We can be captured and controlled by our recreation and comfort and possession so much that this will happen to us. Jesus warned, Mark 4, 19, and the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desire for other things enter in and choke the word and it doesn't bear fruit. Do you know what that means? That people can hear the same simple gospel message and and that message is sitting there waiting for them to act on it and Jesus said watch out because the cares of this world the persistent pressure of keeping up caring about staying up with the world all the cares and and there are there are just normal cares of life just to make it but they can distract people from the gospel and the deceitfulness of riches um, I, I've told you this story many times but I always think about this the, the one week in my life that I was mega 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 wealthy um, I was in seminary and I was doing hospital visitation and I just popped in a hospital room I was supposed to and so I just popped in and talked to the person read him the Bible I'd never seen him before in my life and as I was walking out I, I asked him first I said I'm a seminary student I've got to practice on you can I and it was a man. He says, sure, you can practice. What are you going to do? And I said, I'm going to read the Bible and pray with you. He says, go ahead. So I read the Bible and prayed with him. And I turned around. I said, thanks. And I walked out. I'd gotten my star, you know, for seminary that I had done it. He said, well, wait a minute. He says, you want to help me? And I said, yeah. He says, well, the food in this hospital is, and, you know, he used a bad word. And he said, would you please go get me a Wendy's triple? And I went, a Wendy's triple? I said, I've never had a Wendy's triple. I'm a poor college student. He said, he said Would you, but you want to help me? And I said, okay. So I went to my room, got my $3 I had for laundry, bought him a Wendy's triple, can you believe it, and walked up the back stairs hiding it, took it to the hospital, probably going to kill him of a heart attack because he was a little large anyway, and um, gave it to him and walked out. As I walked out, he said, what was your name again? He said, I'd like to send you a thank you note. And he did. I got an engraved, embossed invitation for dinner. I was picked up by one of those cars that's longer than normal, has more doors. The driver got out and opened the door for me. And I got in the car and looked, and there was Carl, the man from the hospital. And he took me out. And at dinner, he said, you were so kind to me. He said, I'm a believer. And he said, I went along with what you did. And he said, would you like to spend a week with me in Europe? And I thought, man, I'm hungry, poor, college student, I'd love it. And long story short is, I saw Europe the way the rich people do. We flew privately, we landed, we didn't get off where all the people are bumping with their baggage. We got off a side stairway. There was a car waiting below. We out. We went to a hotel. We didn't even check in. We were taken right to our room. We got ready. He says, come on, let's go. There was another car waiting. We went there. We went to the back door of the restaurant. We were let in by more of those people dressed up. There were no prices. There, there was a, an aquarium tank as tall as this. You just picked the fish you wanted, pointed at it, and they went in and got it and cooked it for you fresh. I mean, this was a fresh restaurant. 
Then we went to a play. Annie was playing in the 70s. or that, Yeah, that was the 70s in, in London. We went in the back door, got one of those front overhanging large box seats. By the third day, I was starting to look at all those people that were, you know, waiting in line and buying tickets like they're, you know, they're nothing, you know. That's what happens. Look at the deceitfulness. Look at verse 19. The deceitfulness of riches. You all of a sudden think you're better. You think you deserve something. And Jesus said the deceitfulness of riches and the desire for other things chokes the word. So that's what Mark chapter 10's rich young ruler illustrates. The most deadly byproduct of wealth is it hardens our soul against the requirement Jesus came of simply clinging to him. He said, I'm the door. You can't bring anything through the door. You just, you just let go of everything and cling to me. That's how you get saved. And that man, you know, the, the, you ever saw or looked at the words of Rock of Ages? Uh, simply, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. The rich young ruler said, no. I want to cling to you, but I want to cling to that too. And Jesus said, you can't have both. Now, Back to 2 Peter 3 before we go, okay? Because that was our text, by the way, and we got looking at Peter's biography. But look at what Peter says in verse 14 of 2 Peter 3. He says, materialism blinds our eyes to Christ with earthly treasures. And what Peter taught them, starting in verse 14, is how you protect your spiritual sight. How do you keep from getting blinded? Verse 14, we keep from getting blinded by living peaceably. It says, therefore, beloved, look forward, looking forward to these things, 2 Peter 3.14, be diligent to be found by him in peace. What does that have to do with anything? Well, do you know what one of the byproducts of materialism is? Restlessness. That's feeding our culture. People are restless. I mean, they wait in line to get the newest phone. They'll wait for hours in line to get it. I mean, people want to, want to have the newest and the latest and the biggest and the flashiest and the most modern of anything. There is a restlessness that we don't want to miss anything. And that's fueled by discontent. You know what Jesus said? Looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace. Don't be restless. Don't be discontent. Don't be constantly longing and coveting for what you don't have. But you know what's so interesting? To be found by him. Do you know what salvation is? We're not a number. We're not a group. We're not a, we're an individual. Every person is going to be found personally by Jesus Christ. He says, we're going to be found by him. And that's why either we're going to go in the group rapture or we're going to go in the private one that's dying before the rapture. Jesus actually finds us in the hospital, in our bed at night or while we're driving and Get run over by a snowplow like some relatives here in the church did in Cadillac this week and, and die instantly. But we're found by Jesus. And when he finds us, he says, I want to find you in peace. Not restless, not discontented. Secondly, look at verse 15. We're not only to live peacefully, we're to live evangelistically. It says, consider the long-suffering of the Lord is salvation. The longer the Lord waits for the day of the Lord, for the end of the world, is salvation for the people around us. The longer he waits, we have more opportunity. Do you realize materialism makes us forget why we're really here? 
We're here to invest our lives making disciples for Christ's church. That's what we were called to do, created to do, gifted to do, and that's why we were placed on earth. We were not placed on earth to fill another mini-storage room. Think about it. We really need to recalibrate our goals, you know, that movie, The Bucket List thing. Did you know that you should have on your list that you want to personally lead someone to Christ before you meet him so you can bring them with you to meet Jesus in heaven? Paul said that. He says, when I stand before Christ, 2 Thessalonians 2.19, you people that I brought to Christ are going to be my glorious treasure as I stand in front of him. I'm going to say, Lord, you left me on earth to do something. There they are. I did what you asked me to do. That's not on 90% of all believers in the world's list. That's on Christ's list. And he says, live evangelistically. Verse 15. Look at verse 16. Live biblically. He talks in 16, untaught, unstable people twist to their own destructions the scriptures. We're supposed to live biblically. Did you know materialism makes us neglect the word? We don't even know what's biblical. Do you know what bothers me watching Christian television? Those people are all sitting in these mega churches and they're smiling and they're being taught total error. They're probably believers, but what they're hearing is wrong and they don't even know it. Why? Because they're so materialistic, they never read this thing. They just come every week for their dose of pep talk. And they don't know what's biblical and not biblical. And, and the Lord says, materialism makes us neglect the word. We forget our fellowship times with Christ. It robs us of the needed daily nurture for our souls so we can live biblically. Why? Because we've got to earn more money so we can buy a bigger or a better or another or pay for what we shouldn't have bought anyway. And we're constantly in this, this cycle that we're putting off time with the Lord. And he says, live biblically. Finally, look at verse 17, live confidently. You therefore, beloved, you already know this beforehand. You know what's going to happen. You don't have to be falling away from your own steadfastness, led away with the air of the wicked. Did you know everybody in the world seems to think that this world is all, that, that this world is, is what I'm living for. I should eat and drink and be merry and lay up a lot of stuff and enjoy life. And all Jesus was thinking about is, God, you're going to die. You, you, you're not ready to meet God. We're supposed to be living confidently. Materialism deceives us into following the errors of wicked people who don't know and don't follow the Lord. Well, before we go, we have five minutes. Turn to Luke chapter 12. I want to show you one last portrait because uh, this portrait captures everything that Peter warned them about. And I want to show you uh, in Luke chapter 12 what I call Christ's portrait of a materialism-blinded person. And in Luke 12, and, and I told you this a few weeks ago, the 12th chapter of Luke starts out with the largest crowd Jesus ever had. It says myriads of people in verse 1. And, uh, and someone asks a question in verse 13. Look what they say. They say, teacher, now imagine there are thousands of people, and one person yells, teacher, trying to shame their relative. My brother won't divide the inheritance. And Jesus used what the crowd heard to answer a question. So look at verse 14. So Jesus said to him, man, who made me a judge or arbiter over you? Then he said to them all, verse, four, or verse 15, take heed and beware of covetousness. What's covetousness? 
it's, it's what I'm also calling materialism, that one's life does not consist in the abundance of the things he possesses. Materialism says your life is better if you have this and this and this and more and more and more. And then we begin coveting for it. Then he spoke, verse 16, a parable to them, saying, The ground of a certain rich man yielded plentifully. And he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do, since I have no room to store my crops? So he said, I will do this. I will pull down my barns and build greater, and I will store my crops and my goods. And verse 19, I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul will be required of you, then whose will all those things be which you have stored up? Verse 21, so is he who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Whoa. That man was blinded by materialism. He was successful, and there's nothing wrong with success. In verse 16, he was diligent. He was looking at space and storage needs. In verse 17, he was conservative. He didn't blow it. He saved it. I mean, he was the quintessential thrift, you know. And verse 19, he was a retirement planner. And we all need to think about winter. You know, the danger was not what he was, but what he wasn't. There's nothing wrong with his resume. The problem was not his success, it was not his diligence, it wasn't his conservatism, it wasn't his careful planning for the future. All those elements are good and wise. The danger was not what he was, but what he wasn't. What's absent from the story is God. God is absent. He left God out of his thoughts. Look at verse 16 and 17. He thought within himself. He didn't think, what did God say? What does his word say? What does God want? Secondly, he left God out of his plans in verse 18. You notice how many times? Eleven times it's the possessive pronoun. I, 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 my, 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 my. It's just so much. It's personal planning. God's not in it. He left God out of his future dreams in verse 19. What did he dream of? Taking his ease, eating and drinking and being merry. What happens to those who leave God out of their thoughts and plans and dreams? They lose everything. See, that's what Jesus is warning about. That's what materialism does. Well, then verse 22, he says, So is he who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. What is rich toward God? It has two elements, and I want to close with these thoughts. First of all, it has divestment. Divestment means that you transfer the ownership of everything back to the rightful owner. All I have has come from God. I was not even in existence till God allowed me to be and gave me an immortal soul and allowed me to come into this world. So I divest me ever thinking I own anything. It all belongs to him. Secondly, once you divest, you say, Lord, since all of that is yours, my time, my life, my treasures, everything I have, my wealth, I want to invest it your way. Divesting the ownership and investing everything in my life for his glory. Now, it says in Revelation 3, there was a church that was, and I, I call this believers can get blinded by materialism, and we can. And the church in Laodicea was. And Jesus said, you know what? You're rich, you're increased with goods, and you don't realize that you're poor and miserable and wretched and naked and blind. So I counsel you, ask me to fix your eyes. You know, this morning we should respond to what Peter heard and what Peter responded to. Jesus said, beware of riches. 
divest yourself of thinking that they're yours. Say, Lord, they're not mine. I want to invest my life. Everything, including my body, belongs to you. And Jesus said, if you'll divest and invest, then you'll be rich toward me. So this is what we're going to do. Let's all stand. And as you stand, you can put your Bible down, grab your hymn book, and it's number 335. And we're going to use this as a prayer. It's a, it's a lady that lived in Los Angeles. Her name was Helen Lemmel. It was her testimony. You might already know it, so you might not need the books. It goes like this. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely in the light of his glory and grace. And what we're going to do is sing that as our closing prayer. But I would like you to do this. I'd like you to say, Lord, I want to divest myself of thinking that all that stuff belongs to me. And I want to say right here today that everything in my life belongs to you, and I want you to turn my focus, my eyes, on you. And when you do that, Lord Jesus, make all the stuff on earth get dimmer so that I start thinking more about you than about how to get another mini storage to put more of my junk in. I want to divest myself and invest with you. If you know the words, you can close your eyes, but let's sing to the Lord 335. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. And let's pray. Father, that's our heart's desire, but it's hard. And every day we have to go through the process of re-offering ourselves to you as your slaves. And that means everything that we thought belonged to us is really yours. And we want you to renew our minds so that we start looking at life differently. That we look at it like it's all yours. And we want to live every bit of it possible for you. That's what we ask in the precious name of Jesus and for his glory we pray. And all of God's people said, amen. God bless you as you go.